My name is Rachel Del Judas, and you are listening to the Forge Leadership Podcast. Forge Leadership Network mentors, trains, and connects young conservatives ages 18 to 25, equipping them to lead in politics, culture, and business. For more information or to get involved, visit forgeleadership.org. I'm excited to introduce our speaker, who I'm referencing, Luke Moon. Luke is uh, is the deputy director of the Philos Project, which is an organization that promotes positive Christian engagement in the Middle East. Luke spent time in, gosh, Luke, 30 or more countries? 40, I think 46 or something like that. I think 46. I'm- That's incredible. <laughs> so 46 countries. And not, that, not that I'm counting. That's right. No, that's good. You got to you got to know uh, everything from everything from being a missionary with YWAM in, in Hawaii to combating human trafficking in Eastern Europe to everything in between. Right. Working for a publication on, on all things theology and kind of church and politics to, to now uh, his work with the Philos Project. So we're really excited. Uh, Luke has been a big part of Forge since it started. He's mentored. He's been a, a featured speaker routinely. And Luke's organization, the Philos Project, for those students who have not yet gone on their Passages trip, which, Luke, we got rescheduled thanks to Passages for uh, over Christmas break. Okay. I'm really excited about that. So uh, Luke's organization, Philos Project, is one of the kind of uh, parent organizations of Passages. So Luke, thanks for, thanks for being with us. Then okay. I'll just turn it right over to you. All right. Well, my normal style is standing in front of, you know, a bunch of y'all and you know, the, the energy is a little higher. So I apologize for, you know, having to like sit here and talk through my computer. Well, I, I don't know. When was it? Is this my third or fourth, Adam, you think maybe? Yeah, I think, it's, I, I think it's at least a third. At least a third. So, yeah, I, I always, I always like to speak to you guys. And as Adam said, I... I spent 12 years in YWAM, Youth with a Mission. In that time, I, I spent a lot of time in, in Asia. The first half of that 12 years was focused on a lot of kind of like church planting and evangelism in, in Asia. And then starting in 2005, I started fighting human trafficking. And between 2005 and 2010, I, that, was, that was the bulk of the work I was doing, mostly, mostly in, in Eastern Europe and Africa. I traced the human trafficking routes through Europe. I had three teams, one tracing the routes from from like basically Russia and Ukraine up through Scandinavia. I had a team that was starting in, in Morocco and tracing the Western route. And then there was a team that was doing Eastern Europe up. All of the, all of the uh, routes were going to, to Amsterdam. But in those, you know, many years, I, I spent a lot of time. I mean, YWAM has a big focus on on leadership and, and leadership development and that kind of thing. And, you know, over the years, I, you know, when I left YWAM in, in 2000 or yeah, 2010 is when I left, I just felt like the Lord was saying, you know, Hey, I want you to go to Washington, DC. I was like, well, hmm, uh, okay. So I packed up my wife and daughter and we, we moved to Washington, DC. It was the worst time to move to Washington, DC because, no one was hiring. It was the recession of you know 2010. It was terrible. You know, I did all the right things. So I would send my application and then go knock on the door of the institution. And I never made it actually past the reception 
desk in the lobby. But nonetheless, I, I tried. And then I ended up at an organization called uh, the Institute on Religion and Democracy. And that is also based in Washington, D.C. And that was where I actually first got the taste of is basically the intersection of faith and politics, right? Because, you know, YWAM is is very focused on kind of, it's very kind of big tent. So it's non-confrontational and that kind of thing. Whereas what, what I found when I was, when I was at, at, at the IRD was, it was where I first kind of came across Christians that were, or people that self-identify as Christians who, who promoted things that were fundamentally unchristian. You know, there was a, there was one of the first shockers was a group of, of pastors out of California that were holding a, a 40 days of prayer for abortion. And I thought, well, that's, that's a little nutty. And, and uh, that was just the beginning. It, like I could go on. I, I, there was a, there was a conference called the, the wild goose festival it was a, it was a started, you know, it was very kind of initially, it was kind of like a Christian festival kind of in rural North Carolina in a big field and people camping. It was very kind of hippie ish. And, and, you know, I would, I would go and strike up conversations with people. It was always fun to talk that way. But at this one conference I was at, there was, there was a, um, I was walking by a, you know, down the pass and I saw this sign pointing off into the woods call. And it was, it, the sign read sacred sex space. So I guess if you went down the woods a bit, you would, you would find your way into the sacred sex space. Who knows what that was? I didn't follow that path down. And I just, you know, it's, but, but that kind of like that whole world was, was new to me. And it got me involved in, like I said, in that intersection between faith and politics. And then um, I started to get engaged in, in the Middle East, really starting in 2012. I was, I was tracking a, a group of people that, that I called the Christian left. And the Christian left was, they were all going to a conference in Bethlehem. And I thought, well, if they're all going to a conference in Bethlehem, they're up to no good and I should go too. And so I, I followed them to Bethlehem and that was my first time to Israel. And, and I, you know, I, I in my master's, I had done a, a course on Israel-Palestinian conflict, but I had really never done anything, you know, I, I hadn't done anything with it. Right. And so I thought, well, if I'm going to spend a week in the Palestinian territories, I should spend a week in Israel proper. And so I went ahead and, and did that. I, I went a week early and just toured around the country, meeting people. You know, I would say I would, I had one meeting on my way there and, and that was, and, and when I met the, the person and had the meeting, I said, well, who else should I meet? And they said, Oh, you should really meet this person. So I said, can you introduce me? And that was actually my next meeting. And then I would say to them, after that meeting was over, who else should I meet? And they said, oh, you should really meet this person. And I said, well, can you introduce me? And they would introduce me to that person. And so that was my next meeting. And so I basically just met people all over the country from all walks of life. And I recommend that as a way to do lots of things. But it's it's a fun way to, you know, to see a country just meeting people and you hear all kinds of stories. But and I did that same thing on the Palestinian side. And, and I it, that got me more involved in kind of Israel- uh, Palestinian conflict. I had done some reconciliation work in in Belfast, Northern Ireland, and and Nigeria and stuff. And so I thought, well, 
you know, this, and it was, it was a real opportunity to, to like dig into a conflict that was really challenging. But all the while I was, you know, throughout that entire time, I picked up along the way what I have as my four principles for leadership. They're very simple. They're not super complex. They're perhaps obvious, but it seems to stick. So it's, it's the rules I live by. And now I've been, I've been a, um, like in a kind of number two role. I'm a deputy director. I was a, basically a deputy director in, when I was in D.C. I was a deputy director in YWAM. It was like that's kind of been my, my lot. And, and I, I, think I'm a, I think I'm pretty good at it. And so it's been for like 20 years now I've been doing that. So here I, these are, these are the principles that kind of guide how I see the world and how I make decisions. So principle number one, pretty obvious, fear God, not man. Okay. Fear God, not man. Proverbs uh, 9, 10 says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, Right. To me, like fearing God is to understand your place. You're not God. I'm not God. We're, we're subjects to God, whether we acknowledge him or not. Right. Like that's, you know, God is the creator of the universe. He uh, guides, you know, holds all things together. So one of the things that I, I, I don't remember a lot of sermons over the years, but I do remember one sermon in particular and it was this guy from from South Africa. I was in I was in Hawaii at the time, and this South African game came by and preached at at, at church. In in the sermon, he said something like, like it's, it's, "Again, it stuck with me the whole time, forever since I heard it." And that is that the need for recognition is the fear of man, right? So if you needed if you need the praise of people to succeed in life, you're fearing man, not God. And the sooner you get away from needing the recognition of people, the better off you'll be, right? Because like you are like the, the, the person that, that you should focus on pleasing above all else is God and focusing on him and fearing him. That's, that's should be the focus. I remember one, one of the things when I was just starting out in missions, I remember I was I was reading a lot of like Hudson Taylor and the great missionaries and stuff like that. And I was like, you know, one of the and, and I, I was like, oh, man, I, I just want to I'm going to be like Hudson Taylor. Right. So Hudson Taylor, he was he was, uh, you know, way back in the early 1900s, he was a missionary to China. And he was one of those guys that like he he just like by faith went to China. When he got off the boat, he started preaching the gospel. He dressed like the locals. And so that was a lot of my, you know, that was my focus. And he wasn't focused on, you know, how like making sure he was raising a bunch of money and, and he had everything together before he went. He was trusting God because he felt like God was calling him to go to China. And it was, he was a real inspiration for me. And so when I, I, I was, you know, going to join the mission field, I was like, you know what, I want to, I want to focus on what, you know, I'm going to be like Hudson Taylor. And so I was, and, and I was, I, w- I remember I was at a, at a dinner with this, with, a, with, a, my, with my in-laws and another family. And the, the other family that was there said, well, 
you know, where are you going to get the money to be a missionary? And I said, well, I'm going to just trust God. And, you know, cause that's, that's what I've seen in, in the, like the great missionaries of the faith. They just trusted God. They did what they felt God was leading them to do. And I, and he, he said to me, you know, and I, I told him like Hudson Taylor's my example. And he goes, well, you're no Hudson Taylor. And I was like, well, that's a real, you're a real ass. But like, other than once I got past that part, I was like, you know, listen, I, I, I may not try, I may not be a Hudson Taylor, but you don't, I might be, I think I might. What I know is that I know that I'm called to, by God to go out and preach the gospel. That's what I know. And that's what I'm going to do. And if the money comes, the money comes. And I tell you what, 12 years, 12 years of the craziest adventures you could ever possibly imagine. Just nutty stuff that was like put in front of my feet. And never once did I not have what I needed. Never once in those 12 years. And I, I relied on the support of like random people. I remember like there was a point in which, which, which my wife and I, this was 2001, where we're in, we're in Malaysia. And we, but my wife and I both felt like the Lord was saying to us, I need you to not trust your parents. You can't like, don't ask for money. Don't ask, you're not allowed to ask for money. I want you to trust, trust me for finances, right? Because, you know, I could like, when things got tight and I needed like 300 bucks, I could call up my parents and they would like put money in my bank account or I like, or my in-laws, right? And, and so God was, I felt like God was, was saying to me, like, don't trust your parents, trust me, like watch what I'm going to do. Right. And that was 2001. And so our, our rule was if somebody approached us and said, what do you need? Then I could tell them, but I couldn't be the initiator of that conversation. And it was the, like the craziest stuff happened that year. I mean, there was like at least three times there were points in which I literally had like, I don't know how I'm going to get that next. I have to buy a plane ticket. I have that I have till five o'clock to buy that plane ticket. I have no money. Like run this card again. You run the card again. Nothing. Run the card again. Nothing. Run the card again. Nothing. And then like the last time to run the card, there's money for the for the ticket. But like I was on a, I was, we were in 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 Malaysia and we had to, we were going to India, and I we were gonna do this like two months of going all through like up into like Northern India, the, like Nepal, that area, and and like working with church planters and that kind of thing. And I was way up in there. And before we were in Malaysia, we, we said, you know, people were like, how much do you need? And I was like, I, we're just, you know, I think we need like $2,000 or something like that. And, you know, I had enough to get us to like the, the, like, the airport, but nothing beyond that. I couldn't get on a taxi. I couldn't get like, there was nothing beyond just the airport. And so because people asked me, I didn't sell what we needed. And like, so some guy like bought my, I had an extra backpack. He bought my backpack and paid more than he should have. But like money started like showing up randomly, like in under, like it was slid under my door. Like somebody would walk up and give me, you know, a hundred bucks, but it was all like foreign money. It was, there was euros and there was, Singapore money and there was like you know some dollars in there and so when we get to India and I get to the the customs and I go to the money changer and I hand them all this like 
you know, a range of like a dozen currencies. And I said, all right, here, change my money for me. And the guy like, you know, starts doing his like counting and he, he event like he opens one drawer and then closes it, opens another drawer and he like pulls out these like stacks of money. And the, and the stack was, was like that tall. And I was like, I had this little fanny pack thing that you're supposed to put your money in. And I'm like, well, that, that, you won't fit. You gotta give me like other currency. I like, but that like literally, there was nowhere to get additional money. There was no ATMs anywhere that we were at, and it was like that money lasted us until the day we left India, and that was it. It was like amazing. So, my point with all of that is like, trust God, don't trust man, don't don't need recognition. There's been a ton of times in my life where like, I'll, I'll tell one more story. Like I had, I had this great idea a long time ago, back when Kindles were new, but then nobody had them and they were kind of a special thing. Right. So I had this idea of like, I used to buy, I used to run a course that like it was a general humanities course. So it was 12 weeks long and it had like 12 different speakers and each speaker would, would have a book they would want to be read and it would cost me a ton of money to, to get these books. And so I said, you know what? how about I buy a bunch of Kindles and I'll put the books on the Kindles and I'll let people use the Kindles. And like, it would save me a ton of money because I could put more than, you know, use like basically I could buy them all the, all the books and then put them on all the Kindles at the time you could do that. And so I, I, I did that and I saved a ton of money and it was great. And, and everybody thought it was a great idea and then I finished the course and, you know, went on and did some other stuff and the Kindle sat around and then some got, somebody else came along and, and did the, did the same thing. And there was a moment when that guy, the, the leader of, of YWAM brought that guy, that other guy up on stage and said, this guy has the greatest idea. He put all the books on Kindle. Look, he's so inventive. This is such a smart guy. And I was like, what? I did that first. Come on. Like, what about me? Like, you're going to give me praise or not? Like, and, and I remember in my head, like the need for recognition is the fear of man. So I just like, all right, I, I, I know God knows I'm just going to keep walking. Right. It's, it's, it's something you gotta, it's, you gotta work at it. It's hard, but trust me, uh, the less you need the praise of others, the better off you'll be most of your life. All right. So that's one. Fear God and not man. Right. Two. People's value is never determined by their words or deeds. Okay. People are made in the image of God. And therefore, their value is inherent because they're made in the image of God. Like their, their value, people's value is not in their words or deeds. Okay. And it, it doesn't, it, and, and their value never changes. It's it, they're always loved by God and they should be loved by you. Right. Like the people that drive me the craziest who make me the maddest, they're still made in the image of God and have inherent value and worth. And I have to see them that way. So I use this analogy in a, in a village in Nepal, and I don't know if you can see it, 
Uh, can you see? Can can you kind of see? All right. For those who don't, because there's like a billion of you who just are listening on your phone, you can't see the cool thing that I made. But I made this dollar out of paper, right? It says it has a one on it. It has a face on it. It says one dollar at the top. It has the squiggly lines that usually go with the dollar. You know, it's uh, George Washington's face is there. So let's say that I walked up to, you know, McDonald's and I wanted to, value, you know, I want to be a, a value millionaire, right? And then, and I go up to McDonald's and I say, can you give me a cup of coffee? And they say, and I give them my, my green piece of paper that I made by my, with my pen. They'd be like, what the hell, Luke? Why, why are you giving me that? They, I wouldn't know my name. They would be like, they would just look at me weird. But they would be, they would not be happy about that, right? Why? Because like it's made by me and it's backed up by nobody, right? <laughs> Whereas this, and now I'm holding an actual dollar, right? Like what what makes what makes this piece of paper worth something? Mind you, it will be worth less once we get done with this coronavirus billions and trillions, but nonetheless, in between that so. What makes a normal dollar worth a dollar and Luke's piece of paper worth just nothing that I even a piece of paper? What's the difference between those? I know none of you can answer me because we're on Zoom and it's it's this one one way track. But let me tell you, <laughs> this has value because it's backed up by something bigger than this paper, right? Like. It's not the paper, and it's not the color, and it's not the stamps. It's the who backs it, right? Now, if I take this, and I'm those who can't see, I'm crushing it into a really small ball. What is it worth when it's a really small ball? The dollar that I crushed in my hand, what's it worth? Still worth a dollar, right? Now... If I if I blew my nose on this dollar, it might have coronavirus on it because I'm patient zero, but uh, it would still be worth a dollar because it's still intact. Now, if I put it on the ground and stepped on it and crushed it with my beneath my foot, what would it be worth? It would still be worth it would still be worth a dollar. Why? Because like the value of this is not changed until it's destroyed completely. Like doesn't exist anymore, right? And then it's in another place. Of, you know, God's sorting out that stuff. In a, he has a pay grade, not mine, right? So you got like me. The the point is that people's value is even more than this dollar. But it, the dollar gives you a sense of I hope, like. There's something bigger than any of us, the creator of the universe. And he's the one who says, you are made in the image of God, and you have inherent value because of that. And that's where everybody's value lies. And it doesn't lie in what you do or what you say or what other people say or what other people do. It's, it's, it's determined by God, and it's not changed by the actions of people. And that's where, and 
And that's when you, when you love people, that's what you're loving. I spend a, in a uh, way too much time fighting with people on Facebook. I don't know why I'm kind of into it. It's one of those things. I, it's, it's my medium of choice to, to, you know, present the world with my weird ideas. Right. But I argue with people there all the time. And some of them drive me, oh my gosh, like they drive me so crazy. But I love them. I love them. And no matter what they do, I will still love them. So love people as like in the way that God does. You know, there's all those movies. I can't remember any of them even off the top of what they're called right now, but they're like, you know, those like it's it's like the kind of movie where there's like a teacher, she's in an inner city, and like, you know, the kids are like, you know, gangbangers and like, you know, running around killing people and Right. Like they're it's just a mess. And she comes in and she's like teaches them poetry and crap. Who knows? Like, but she's what the thing that they're getting into is that the, she's she's tapping into that thing that's deeper than their actions and what they're doing. She's 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 seeing their value. I'm telling you, like when, when you look at people from a value perspective, like you get past a whole bunch of crap and you, you can really impact somebody's life. Does that make sense? All right. So here's the, here's the next thing. One of the things that I, I, I take very, I focus on a, a good deal. This is point number three. My point number three is there's a difference between public and private conversations okay like on on my when i'm when i'm like putting something out on facebook or twitter right it's like here's luke's big thought of the day everybody and like people come at me or they're like yeah luke that's awesome and they share it right it's on twitter nobody cares but it's on facebook uh, you know some people like it now one of the things that, like, that, and this, this I learned, I think, probably most when I was at the, the IRD Institute on Religion and Democracy, was this idea that there is a, I, I see this in Jesus, right? So Jesus is, teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, everybody loves the part of the Sermon on the Mount, like, you know, blessed are the meek, for, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit, like, that's the part that people love. Do not worry. Right? It's great. You know, right? The people that the, the part that's a little bit harder is like, you know, if, if you have if, if you if you look at a, a woman with lust in your heart, you're committing adultery. Right. If you say to your brother, I hate you, you're murdering him. Right. Like so there's these points where he's like and well, there's even that part where it's like if somebody. uh wants to to borrow your 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 coat give him your shirt too right and like if somebody asks for money give it to them and don't expect anything back right all those are like left off with the like the magic sermon on the mount part right that a lot of people have it's the it's the, it's the harder part but like you can imagine that when jesus was doing the sermon on the mount there was a whole bunch of people that were like 
now Jesus. You know, it's like the, it's like the, you know, that's a little too much. You're going a little too far there. Like, like step back a little bit. Come really like, don't ask for your money back. You know, what do you like? I can't look at a woman. What? What are you talking about? Like he's like, he's challenging them. He's challenging them at their core, right? He's being confrontational. And then you have the the story of the woman, the woman at the well, or the woman caught in adultery, right? The woman at the well. We'll use that one, right? Like when Jesus walks up and he's like, "Hey, can I have some water?" and 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 like, you know, and and you know, they get in this conversation, and he, you know, he knows that that she's like, she has a lot of husbands, and you know, the woman that or the the man she's with is not her husband, and you don't see this like you don't see the level you don't see a confrontational Jesus in that moment do you you see a Jesus that is in that in in that personal relationship he's very he's very caring and compassionate i mean you can think of like zacchaeus you can think of the you know the obviously the the woman at the well is an example the woman caught in adultery is a bigger group, but like and the woman that like comes and and breaks the 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 ointment on on Jesus' feet, like these stories are very like where it's it's very intimate. You get a you get a it, Jesus is not as confrontational towards the people he's engaging with, and so to me, like one of the things that I work really hard at is while I'm confrontational in my public push at the world. Here's what Luke thinks about whatever, right? I'm very, I'm very direct about this stuff, but I'm also very careful about preserving relationships, right? Like the relationships, like if I feel in, in my confrontation with people, if I feel like there's a point in which we go too far or, or I go too far, I'll step back. I will, I will message somebody and say, I don't mean anything like don't take anything like personally you know, it's like I'm very aware that there is a difference between how you engage people on a like one-on-one basis versus how you, in a sense, like it's, it's like a personal versus public face. Um, not that they're like you're two faced, but that one is much more about preserving the relationship you know, I, w- I would say that there, there's a quote that comes to mind that I don't actually know who, who said it, but like, uh, live so that others can defend you, but never have to. Right. So what I, what I want is to, like, I want people, you know, to be able to say, oh, Luke Moon, he's man, that, I, I don't agree with what he says about like 90% of the time, but he, he's a really great guy. That to me is like, is evidence that I'm where I want to be, right? Because I, I don't want to be known for being like a jerk and being confrontational. You can be, a, you can be perceived like it's, it's the only thing people can, can see of you, but they got to, if, if you have those personal relationships with people and working really hard to preserve those relationships, it, it makes a huge difference. And you know, it's, it's really, you know, one of my, one of my, you know, in that principle number three, it's like, 
I, I work at relationships almost more than anything else I do in my life. Right. It was like, to me, there is, there is no wasted relationship out there. None. Even if it's, if, if it's an antagonistic relationship, it's a relationship worth preserving because you don't know where that relationship will lead. And this, if you cut people off, if you cut people off out of relationship from, from relationship, like you don't know where that, you know, you like, you know, you don't want to burn those bridges. You don't want to like, you don't want to be the one who, who, who cuts things off. I mean, one of the things that I spent a lot of time in the, in the West Bank and Palestinian territories, I'm, I'm very pro-Israel doesn't mean I'm anti-Palestinian. It's usually the, you know, the framing that everybody gives. You got to, you know, love one and hate the other or love the other and hate the Like it's, it's like you're, you're forced in this like crazy binary, right? But one of the things that I'm very careful, like, you know, I'm, I'm very clear on my view of Israel. And I will go have meetings with, you know, one of my favorite things to do is like have, you know, walk up to a person that I'm not supposed to talk to because like, you know, you're not supposed to talk to that guy. He's bad. Right. And I'll say, Hey, you want to go grab a beer? I find them when you offer somebody, if you're most people take you up on it and, and, you know, you go out and you talk to them and like, you never know where that conversation is going to lead. Like some of the, like my, my best relationships in Israel are with people who, like we fundamentally disagree like almost a hundred percent on, on all things Israel, Palestine, but like we're like some, like they're, we're, we're super close. Right. Because I like, I work at those relationships. Now some, you know, in, in when I invite people, sometimes it's, they're just one-off meals or one-off drinks or coffee or whatever, but sometimes they lead to, to like, they open doors. You never know what's, what's gonna, what's gonna happen. I was, I was, uh, last, last year I was, I was in, in Israel or actually in, in Bethlehem. And, and I went out with, after, after an event I went to, I, I went to a, a rooftop restaurant of a friend of mine. And, and it was like, there was a, it was kind of a, I think it was kind of set up almost, but it was me and Robert Nicholson and like four, two, three Palestinians, and then a couple of a couple of white ladies, like you know, from the UK or something. Who knows? Anyway, we're, we're sitting there, and and you know, I would say something, and this one of the ladies would like every time I said something, she would like guffaw. She would like go, ah, right, and I was like, and and it's like a trigger warning for me. As soon as you start guffawing in my presence, you're just like, you just, you're going to, you're egging me on. All you want me to do is, is go a little bit further, a little bit harder than I normally would just to, you know, be a little bit more aggressive, if you will. Anyway. So, so here we are like in this group and I just keep, I keep pushing and I keep having this, you know, I'm, I'm having these great conversations with these other guys, but this woman, every time I'd say something, she'd be like, ah, right. And so at the end of the night, you know, I'm, you know, we get up to, to leave and I go to shake her hand and she goes, don't touch me. You know, you, you want, you, you, 
you hate Palestinians. You want them all to die. You want you you want you you the way, the way you talk to the Palestinians, they're like slaves to you. You hate them. You're like you're like you're you're evil. You're an evil bad man. And my boss, who was with me, jokingly egged me like gave me an elbow and said, "Yeah, he, he, he's a really bad guy." And and she turned on him, right? And like she started yelling at him, and like and all the while the guy that had had let her into the restaurant was watching this. And at some point it was like enough. Right. And he kicked them out. The other two ladies, even though they were on his side politically, he was like, he's, he was, he's our friend. Right. And that's the kind of people that I, I work really hard at those relationships. So that point three, it's kind of, it's kind of meandering. It's not so clear, but work these relationships. That's the bottom line. Okay. All right, my my point four, and that is if you really want to be a, a like really 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 excel at leadership, there's no better crucible of leadership than getting married and having children. Okay, like that's my my advice to all of you: get married and have children. You will like the leadership that happens in the home is like and and I'm like the the leadership the like what you're taught in a relationship with your spouse and your children cannot be mimicked in any other environment i've never seen it and i don't even think it's possible right because those are like 24/7 like mirrors on like who you are as a person right there's like so many times i i like my daughter will do something and I'll be like, wow, that just, that's all me right there. I saw me, I saw me and that's not good. Like, I don't like that part of me. There's a lot of like stats on this. I would, you know, if, you, if you're looking for someone to like follow in terms of the benefits of marriage and children, you should follow Brad Wilcox. He's at the UVA. He's a really great guy. Anyway, um, follow him on Twitter. He's, he brings a lot in there, but I'm, I'm telling you like, you know, there was one of the, I was thinking about this today in preparation for this talk, I guess, is that, you know, the, in, in the New Testament, the criteria for, for eldership, right, was like the husband of one wife, like his children, like it was like how he is in his home will determine how he's going to be in as a leader in the church, right? Like that, that is a, that that's tough. And I'm telling you, even though you're all like, you know, young, and you're like probably not looking, or some of you are, and who knows, some of you have already, you know, already married. Like, there's nothing, nothing teaches you on principles of leadership, like being a spouse and a husband or wife and a father or mother. Like, nothing, there's, there's no alternative to that. It's amazing. I say it's like, Certainly the like greatest joy of my life. So of all the many fun, you know, leadership things that I've done, all the crazy rooms that I've gotten myself into and all the, you know, the people I've met, like nothing, nothing beats being a, like a dad and a husband. So, yeah, that's my, uh, that's my four points. Right? It was, that was easy. 
Well, hey, hey, Lou, appreciate you joining us. Thank you for listening to the Forge Leadership Podcast. If you like the show, please drop a review in your podcast app and be sure to subscribe for all of our latest episodes. You can follow Forge Leadership Network at Forge Leadership on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. For more information about Forge programming, please visit forgeleadership.org.